Jai Nityananda Jai Dwaita Chandra Jaya Gora Bhakta Vrinda Jai Jai Sri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jai Dwaita Chandra Jaya Gora Bhakta Vrinda So it's August 25th, 2018, Bhakti Manor in London, and I was told to do, yeah, through 157, although 155 has a purport. I guess that's what we're used to. So reading from Chaitanya Charitamrita Adi Lila, Chapter 17, Pastimes of the Lord in His Youth. We're doing 155 to 157. 155 is on board. Kaji kahe tomara pranam. Kaji kahe tomara shastra kitava koranam. Kaji kahe. The Kazi replies, Tomara, your, Yaiche, as much as, Veda Puran, the Vedas and Puranas, Taiche, similarly, Amara, our, Shastra, Scripture, Ketava, the Holy Book, Koran, the Koran. Prabhupada's translation. The Kazi replied, As you have your scriptures, called the Vedas and Puranas, we have our scripture, known as the Holy Quran. Prabhupada's purport. Chan Kazi agreed to talk with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu on the strength of the scriptures. According to the Vedic scripture, if one can support his position by quoting from the Vedas, his argument is perfect. Similarly, when the Mohammedans support their position with quotations from the Quran, their arguments are also authorized. When Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu raised the question of the Mohammedans' cow killing and bull killing, Chankazi came to the standard of understanding from his scriptures. So, 156, translation. According to the Quran, there are two ways of advancement. Through increasing the propensity to enjoy and decreasing the propensity to enjoy. On the path of decreasing attachment, Nivriti Marg, the killing of animals is prohibited. Text 157. On the path of material activities, there is regulation for killing cows. If such killing is done under the guidance of scripture, there is no sin. Purport. The word shastra is derived from the datu or verbal root shash. Shash datu pertains to controlling or ruling. A government's ruling through force or weapons is called shastra. Thus, whenever there is ruling, either by weapons or by injunctions, the shastatu is the basic principle. Between shastra, ruling through weapons, and shastra, ruling through the injunctions of the scriptures, the better is shastra. Our Vedic scriptures are not ordinary law books of human common sense. They are the statements of factually liberated persons unaffected by the imperfectness of the senses. Shastra must be correct always, not sometimes correct and sometimes incorrect. In the Vedic scriptures, the cow is described as a mother. 
Therefore, she is a mother for all time. It is not, as some rascals say, that in the Vedic age she was a mother, but she is not in this age. If Shastra is an authority, the cow is mother always. She was a mother in the Vedic age, and she is a mother in this age also. If one acts according to the injunctions of Shastra, he is free from the reactions of sinful activities. For example, the propensities for eating flesh, drinking wine, and enjoying sex life are all natural to the conditioned soul. The path of such enjoyment is called pravritti marva. The Shastra says, pravritir esha bhutanam tu mahapalam. One should not be carried away by the propensities of defective conditioned life. One should be guided by the principles of the Shastras. A child's propensity is to play all day long. But it is the injunction of the Shastras that the parents should take care to educate him. The Shastras are there just to guide the activities of human society. But because people do not refer to the instructions of Shastras, which are free from defects and imperfections, they are therefore misguided by so-called educated teachers and leaders who are full of the deficiencies of conditioned life. Kajikahe Tomarayachi Veda Puran, Tache Amar Shastra, Ketava Puran. Because he replied, as you have your scriptures called the Vedas and Puranas, we have our scriptures known as the Holy Quran. According to the Quran, there are two ways of advancement through increasing the propensity to enjoy and decreasing the propensity to enjoy. On the path of decreasing attachment, the killing of animals is prohibited. On the path of material activities, there is regulation for killing cows. If such killing is done under the guidance of scripture, there is no sin. So everybody wants to know what's the best thing to do. What should I do? How should I act in a way that I'll be happy and fortunate? Yeah. I mean, I think this is all of our question all of the time. That's like the question we're constantly asking. How should I think? How should I feel? How should I behave? so that I'll be happy. I'll be happy, I'll be healthy, I'll have friends, all the different ways in which we want to be happy. But the problem is that we don't really know what to do. And we really don't know what to do. Even if you study material nature very thoroughly, we find that a lot of the things we think we should avoid are actually good for us, and a lot of the things we think are good for us we should avoid. You know, we'll do something, we'll think, wow, this will make me happy. And it doesn't always work. And there are things we say, oh, I, I never want to do that. I have to make sure I never do that. I'll be miserable. And sometimes we end up having to do it anyway by force of circumstance, and we find out it was wonderful. Yes? Does everyone have this experience? What we try to avoid sometimes is like, wow, why was I avoiding that? And other things we try to do, we're thinking, oh, why did I want to do this? And other people can't always help us either. You know, we go to our family, as Prabhupada's saying, yeah. so-called educated teachers and leaders, so we go to our political leaders, our teachers in school, maybe our family, but they don't know either. Right? In modern society, they're saying, if you want to be happy, take the path of what is here called pravritti marg. It's pravritti marg and nivritti marg. Pravritti marg means 
trying to enjoy the world. And nivriti marg means detachment from the world. So right now in 2018 in the world, most of the leaders of society are telling us to take the path of pravriti marg. But they're not even telling us to take the path of pravriti marg by the instructions of the shastras. In fact, referring to the shastras is, is really a bad thing. Only foolish, uncivilized people refer to scriptures. That's the, the mood in the modern schools, from the modern political leaders, in the media. When uh, we were writing our literacy program to teach children how to read English, or, or learn to read, which is going to be back in print. <coughs> so uh, our team was examining various literacy programs, uh, mostly from America, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. What were the top programs to teach children how to read? And what do you think was absent? What was just not there in the chil- these children's reading series? Hmm? Knowledge of God. Even talk of God. Let's speak knowledge of God. There wasn't even talk of God. I mean, you could find a reading series made by Christian organizations, especially in America, that would be, you know, saturated with Jesus. But the main literacy programs used in the main schools in America, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, I didn't look at South Africa. Even India was like that. God wasn't even mentioned You know, I remember one of the UK ones, there was one book about festivals, and it talked about Christmas and Diwali, but there was no God. (laughs) You know, just Christmas with Christmas trees and Santa Claus, there there was no Jesus. And just Diwali with lights, there was no Krishna, there was no Ram. He was just absent. And if we grow up thinking that God is absent and irrelevant... You just don't talk about him. You know, I was just spending some time at the Vunti House School yesterday and they were telling me how the government is so terrified that in a faith school they'll teach about faith. I had no idea. I was always wondering, why don't they teach more about Krishna in the Vunti schools? Well, I found out why. Because the government is like, do you have any Krishna here? Do you have any Krishna here? Do you have any God over here? Do you have any God over there? Okay, good. No God. Then in regard to meat-eating here, because here we're talking about meat-eating, I found something else very interesting in the children's books. And I bet you none of you will guess what it is, because I couldn't have guessed what it was. I expected not to find God. You know, God is marginalized. I expected that. Because modern secular society, God is, you know, well... If you really want to hang on to your old traditions out of sentiment, we'll tolerate it in society. You know, but really educated people are into science and technology. And of course, you can't be both religious and a scientist, right? That's their idea. Although there's many religious scientists. But what I found about meat-eating was astonishing. So in many of the commercial children's books to teach how to read, and books to teach how to read, if you can think about this for a moment, the children don't yet know how to read, right? They're learning how to read. 
So their reading material is pretty much restricted to the books that teach how to read because they, they're learning the sounds of the language in a particular order, a particular way. And therefore, they can only read the books that have English in the way they've been taught to read so far. If that, make, that makes sense to all of you? If they just pick up, pick up a regular book, they won't be able to figure out what it says because it will have word patterns they haven't learned yet. So what you give to kids when they're learning how to read is practically the main reading source that they have. Of course, they also have the television and so forth. And this is a really crucial age, ages five, six, seven. It's the age at which, you know, under, the, under that, you're kind of just taking in everything in the world. And starting at about age five, at least according to Piaget, your ability to focus starts coming into existence. You know, you, you, really, you really start to be able to learn things in a focused way, not just in a broad way. So in these books, there were many stories of predator animals chasing prey animals. Tigers chasing deer, T-Rex chasing a brontosaurus. Lots and lots of stories like that. Guess who always won in those stories? Was it the predator animal or the prey animal? Hmm? Who do you think always won? Was it the tiger or the deer? These are books for five and six-year-old children. Who do you think always won, the tiger or the deer? You really think the tiger won? So you all really think that five-year-old children are going to have books of tigers eating deer? Really? They never won. The carnivorous animals always went to bed hungry. Always, unless they were eating insects. So if it was a bird eating an insect, the bird could catch the insect. That was okay. But anything above an insect, the predator animal always lost. Always. The little rabbit got away. The little deer got away. The little brontosaurus got away. And the poor T-Rex went to bed hungry. And nobody cared. There was no sympathy for the tiger and the wolf and the T-Rex and the eagle. None. The sympathy was all with the prey animals. Every time, except for insects. But what else do you think was in those children's books? A lot of what's related to today's verse? A lot of meat-eating. So the books were full of meat-eating. They're eating hamburgers, they're eating hot dogs. It's all over the place. As normal. So somehow it's wrong for a tiger to kill a deer and an eagle to kill a rabbit, but it's okay to eat a cow. Why do you think they do that? Why do you think they have eating of cows? Yeah? Basically sever the link between the food Exactly. They've psychologically severed the link between our natural compassion for an animal who's going to be eaten and our eating of meat. And this severing of that link at a very, very, very young age, and you think they do it, are they doing it explicitly? Are they saying to the children, you can love animals and kill them? Are they saying that? 
No. They're doing it indirectly. And they're doing it repeatedly. They're repeatedly exposing children to these stories. The little rabbit is now safe. They all ended like that. The little bird is... The cat's chasing the bird. And the little bird is now safe. They were all like that. And then the children are, oh, I love the little rabbit. I love the little bird. I love the little brontosaurus. And I can eat a cat. And the two have nothing to do with each other. And it's this propaganda given to children at a very, very young age, which is why it's sometimes so difficult for us to convince somebody to be a vegetarian. And we we just don't get it. You know, we say to them, well, you love your dog and cat. And they're like, yeah. So? But but the cow is not that much... I'm sorry, they they don't see the connection. It's like someone's cut the wires in their brain. You know, so therefore, Prophet's saying in this purport, you should educate your children. Right? He ends the purport saying, you should educate your children. Don't just let them play. But don't give them miseducation. So in modern society, we're miseducated about how to be happy. We're given the wrong information. We're told on a societal level, be happy with growth, 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 growth. Keep getting that gross national product higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. Now, what is economics based on? What is, where does wealth come from? Real wealth, where does it come from? The land. Do you know that there was an intentional move by economists to separate economic theories from any concept of land? Economics, as is being taught today, is intentionally divorced from land as a finite resource. Is land a finite resource? If economics is based on land, which is economics based on land? Has to be. Everything, all growth comes from land. All wealth comes from land. What we grow on the land. Yes? I mean, some wealth comes from the water and the air. Artificial fertilizers are made out of air. Did you know that? Seriously. But real wealth is based on natural resources, which are finite. So can there be unlimited economic growth? Is that possible? No. But they've severed this in our mind. There's, there's a break in our consciousness between we need to take care of our finite, fragile earth and we can have unlimited economic growth. They can't coexist. Like you can't care about the little rabbit and eat the little rabbit. 
or we're told science and technology is going to make life better and better and better. And it does make life better and better and better for some people, some of the times, in some ways. And it makes life worse and worse and worse for other people, some of the times, in other ways. So for us to have our smartphones and our this and our that, there's some child in Africa mining rare metals and practically slavery. And there's somebody in China breathing in noxious fumes and not having medical insurance. And then we're getting all these diseases, you know, that were never really prevalent in human society before from all of our science and technology, isn't it? Now, our modern life is making us more mentally ill. People are taking so many medicines for mental illness that it's being secreted in their urine, it's going in the water, and the fish are becoming weird. Did you know that? The fish are drinking so much Prozac and Zantex. Seriously, I'm not making this up. That they're just in the water. Okay, eat me. It's messing us. The fi- And then all the hormones for birth control... It's skewing the gender ratio of the fish. There's a much higher female to male ratio of fish. And it's going in the water, so we're drinking it. Everybody's drinking female hormones now. Seriously, look it up. So they don't know how to make us happy. They're saying, do this, it will make you happy. Do this, it will make you. And they don't tell you about the other side. They kind of separate it in your brain from a young age. And then don't think about the consequences. Don't, don't think about the other side. What to speak of the consequences in other lifetimes? We're just talking about the consequences in this lifetime. What to speak of taking birth again and having to be a cow that, you, that gets killed? Nobody even talks about those consequences. And we don't really understand why there's so many problems in society on an individual level, on the societal level. We're doing everything they've told us to do. But they don't know. So what's really best for us may not appear to be pleasing initially. This is the mode of goodness. It appears like poison at the beginning and nectar at the end. Whereas the mode of passion, it looks like nectar at the beginning, but it's poison at the end. And the mode of ignorance, it's just nothing but poison. So how are we going to know what's best for us? There's only one way to know what's best for us. We have to ask the person in charge. There's no way around it. There's just no other explanation. We're too small. We're we're too subject to be bewildered. And if we're honest for, you know, a couple seconds, we'll have to see that. You know, I don't know. I don't know what's the best thing for me to do in the next half an hour or the next day or the next month. I have no idea. I really have no idea. I don't even know what's the major decisions in my life and what's the minor decisions in my life. Maybe getting in a vehicle at a particular time will be the most important thing I do in my whole life. I don't know. Maybe that'll change my whole life. I like to give the example that we say that if somebody takes one bit of Krishna prasadam that they'll have a good birth as a human being next life, right? One, as you call them, biscuit. Or for anyone listening in America, that's called a cookie. If 
you go to America and ask for a biscuit, you'll get a scone. You won't get a cookie. But you know, one, one prasadam, something, one samosa, one biscuit, one something. And we go out on the streets like you're at the actor, we're giving cookies to people, and biscuits, and whatever you were giving, lemons. And that may be the most important thing they do in their whole life. Or they say, one Hare Krishna, you know, we're walking down, oh, Hare Krishna. But that person doesn't think it's the most important thing in their life, do they? If you ask that person, what's the most important thing you've done in your life? They wouldn't say, having that food from the Hare Krishnas. (laughs) They'd say something else. So neither do we know what's the most important thing in our life. Who knows? We, We really can't judge. And getting us all together as a group doesn't help. Getting a bunch of, you know, imperfect people as a group. You still are imperfect. Making machines with our imperfections are still imperfect. Our telescopes, our microscopes, they're all imperfect. We don't know what we don't know. We have no idea what we don't know. And we have no idea what our machines are not seeing. And we have no idea what as a group we don't know. We're just lost. Sorry to be so depressing. But somebody knows. Somebody made this whole place and is running the whole show. If nobody was running the show, then we wouldn't be able to predict a thousand years in advance where the planets are going to be. That's a pretty amazing person. We can't do that with our man-made airplanes. Even with thousands of people running the airplanes, we can't absolutely predict, if you've ever been on a plane, when it's going to take off and when it's going to land. But we can absolutely predict where is Mars going to be, where is Jupiter going to be. Somebody's running the show. We ask that person, what's the right thing to do? What will make me happy? What will not make me happy? And Krishna says, Surinam Sarvabhutanam, he's our well-wishing friend. He's not going to give us bad advice. So not only does he know what's going on, he cares about giving us good advice. And you can say, well, I don't see him. I can't talk to him. But he's written instruction manuals and he's had the great saintly persons write instruction manuals. Hey, come on, you get a, a phone, there's an instruction manual, right? Why wouldn't there be an instruction manual with the world? That wouldn't be very friendly if God says he's the best friend. He should have an instruction manual. So, Dharma through Sakshad Bhagavad Pranita. What is actually Dharma is coming from God and coming from God at the very beginning of creation. And then Yada Yadahi Dharma Shadlani Bhavati Bharata Bhutanama Dharma Shadatmanam Srutamyaham. It keeps being revived. So our main guide is from the Shastra. Now we can have a few arguments here. One argument is, well, there's different Shastras. Here we have Veda's Puran and the Quran. Prabhupada's not here denigrating the Quran. He's saying this is legitimate. Lord Chaitanya's quoting from the Vedas and Puran, and the Kazi's quoting uh, from the Vedas and Purana, and the Kazi's quoting from the Quran. Prabhupada's giving legitimacy to this. The Kazi's quoting from his Shastras. And the Shastras differ in details. They definitely do. Even within the Vedas, the different Shastras differ in details, yes? 
But they don't differ in principle. The principle of all the Shastras is the same. What is the essential principle of all the world's genuine religion? Hmm? To love God. To love God and to love all living beings. That is the basic principle. And if you start from that basic principle, just like Bhakti Nautakur says, in the spiritual world there's two rules. Have love and don't envy. If everything we think, everything we do is based on affection and love and respect for the Lord and a similar affection, love and respect for all living beings and all objects, everything as his parts, as his energies, then you know what? We'll always do the right thing. Anything done in that consciousness is always the right thing. But then we have a problem. Well, I can't be at that consciousness fully and completely immediately. So therefore, there's rules. You know, there's specific rules. You can eat this, you can't eat this, you can do this, you can do that. But when we look at those specific rules, we have another problem. And Prabhupada's saying here, Shastra must be correct, always not sometimes correct, and sometimes incorrect. But the rules of Shastra, again, differ from one Shastra to the next. And even within the same Shastra, like Krishna tells Arjuna, for one who's been honored, dishonor is worse than death. And then a little while later, he says, don't be concerned about honor and dishonor. What to do? Should I consider dishonor worse than death or not be concerned about honor and dishonor? Krishna tells Arjuna, go get a deer skin and go away from everybody and look at the tip of your nose and chant Om and stand up and fight. Arjuna was confused. So even within the same Shastra, there may be different instructions. And as the Kazi's pointing out, there's two main categories of instruction, Pravriti Mark and Nivriti Mark. The scriptures give instruction how to regulate. All right, all right. You want to try to enjoy the world in illusion. It's not a good idea. You're going to miss the whole point. But if you want to do it, here's some rules for you. And then there's a whole set of instructions. Do you want to get liberated from the world? Do you want to find the real happiness in life? Do you want to find spirituality? Here are some rules for you. So although scripture is always correct and never incorrect, in order to understand how to apply scripture, what do we need? We need guidance. Like Prabhupada would give the example that in a pharmacy, at a chemist shop, as you say here, in America, if you say I want to go to the chemist, it would mean something quite different. You're going to some kind of research laboratory. But if you're going to go to the pharmacy, all the medicines in the pharmacy are correct. They're all ostensibly good medicines, at least theoretically. But that doesn't mean every medicine is correct for every person at every time. 
You can't just say, well, everything in this pharmacy is a beneficial medicine. Let me close my eyes and grab anything off the shelf. Or let me take everything. Let me eat all the medicines in the pharmacy. Therefore, Mahaprabhu quotes that the Shastras appear bibina. They appear to say different things. And the Munis also have a different opinion. Therefore, we have to follow the Mahajana. So therefore, there has to be guru. There has to be sadhu. Sadhu shows us how do you live the scriptures? What does it mean? How do you take the rules of the scriptures and translate them into action? But even with the sadhus, if we're going to look at Dhruva Maharaj, are we going to exactly follow what he did? We'd all die. Okay, everybody, our new regulation is some dry leaves every 12 days. So we can see again how Dhruva took up the principles, but we can't follow he took up the details. Well, you want to have a happy householder life? By mystic power, make a flying city for your wife and take her all over the universe. I'll be in our new Grahasta course. We can't imitate the details. You know, but we can look at the principles. So it's very important also, because we do need the details, to have sadhus in our present time. To just have the examples of sadhus of millions of years ago, you know, I don't know what to do this morning and this week. So therefore, Srila Prabhupada has created this society of devotees that we can understand by the sadhus in our own society how to behave. And then one also has to have guru. Guru gives personal instruction for me. Which, by the way, may be different from personal instruction for you. And the personal instruction for you now may be different from the personal instruction for you 10 years ago or 10 years from now. What's appropriate instruction for somebody at one time is not appropriate instruction for somebody else. Like Prabhupada says in the 18th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, that even the sannyasis should encourage young people to marry. So even a sannyasi should say to a 20, 25-year-old, hey, you should get married. But then they should say to that same person at 50, hey, now why don't you, why don't you get renounced? So therefore saying Shastra is always, always correct, not sometimes correct and sometimes incorrect, doesn't mean we should follow Shastra blindly. So our first principle is I don't know and I don't know what I don't know. I know I don't know. But I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what's missing. I don't know what, what part of my perception is correct and what part of my perception is incorrect. And I don't know what things I'm not perceiving at all. And the leaders of the society are not much help because... They're, guide, they're obviously guiding people in the wrong way. If you just examine it for 10 or 15 minutes like we did today, you can see, yeah, that's messed up. Something really messed up with how they're guiding people. Eat healthy but buy Coca-Cola. You know, it just like doesn't make sense. 
So I can't rely on them. I can't rely on groups of imperfect people. I've got to rely on the instructions from God. And I can understand the principles of scripture, but for the details, I need sadhu and guru. But the main principle is if my actions are motivated by love of God, then everything I do will be beneficial for me and others. Because that is is the essence of reality. Everything else is a detail, and details can shift. But that never shifts. I'm part of the Supreme, and my relationship between me and the Supreme is that of loving, affectionate service. He loves me. He has affection towards me. He is serving me. Is Krishna serving us? I think so, yeah? Eko bahunam yovira And I should also serve him without expecting anything in return. And when one thinks like that, one immediately understands, oh, I shouldn't kill some creature unnecessarily just to eat them. I shouldn't pollute my body with intoxication, with illicit sex. I shouldn't pollute the economic system with gambling. One can immediately understand these things. So we should study the Shastra. Prabhupada has translated so many books into English, and so many of his disciples and followers are translating so many more books. We should study the Shastras. We should know the Shastras. We can certainly take advice from from other people, but always remember that advice, if it's coming from some psychiatrist or some scientist or whatever, some economist, that they're also imperfect. Never privilege that over Shastra. And to understand Shastra from the sadhus and the gurus, then we will be happy. And we'll be happy even if there's reverses and difficulties in life. We'll be able to deal with them in a way that will be happy. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, corrections? Yes. Thank you for the helpful class. And something I was meditating upon, and I don't know if I'll be able to explain well enough, was something you touched upon is that we need to help us understand how to apply the details in our lives. Absolutely. And uh, I would imagine you, you've probably been asked this several times, but how does one do that if they don't have such personal association with their uh, All right, well, first of all, Diksha Guru is not the only guru. There's also Shiksha Gurus. And ideally... We should be moving towards a society where people have very personal relationships with their gurus. Ideally. I mean, when Prabhupada came, he was the only guru. What could be done? What could be? There was nothing that Prabhupada could do, you know, and he tried to ask the leaders of his society to act as shiksha gurus, but many times, just because somebody was a temple president, didn't mean that they actually had more insight than somebody who was the pot washer. They'd probably both only been chanting Hare Krishna for six months. So it was a little problematic. But I think at this point, now that we're 50 years of a movement, we should come to the point that Prabhupada wanted, where he said, 
have a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand gurus. We should come to that point. You know, where with gurus are local, there's many, many gurus, and people do have a personal relationship with their spiritual master. This is this is what we should be aiming for. But we should have people in our life, even if they're not our diksha guru, from whom we can take personal guidance and advice. That's essential. We should have at least one person who knows me well enough, who I trust, who I can get some personal guidance from. Without, without that kind of relationship, spiritual life will be extremely difficult. It really will be very difficult. Yes. Um, similar, on a similar basis, uh, if you can share some examples with Prabhupada how he was corresponding with his disciples and showing personal care, if you can share some examples. Well, I would just suggest pick up the, the books of Prabhupada's letters and listen to Prabhupada's conversations. I mean, one example that I can think of, I don't know if this is what you want, but... Um, in 1975, I ended up somehow or other with a very small group of people who went with Prabhupada to the airport when he was leaving. So when Prabhupada was, he was going to London. When Prabhupada arrived in New York then, there was a huge crowd. I don't know, three, four hundred devotees. It was huge. But when Prabhupada left, there was just a handful of us. Fifteen, maybe? Small group. And... Srila Prabhupada was talking to the devotees there that he knew very well, like Kirtananda and Shalavati and, and Satchabama. And he was uh, asking them just about their life, what we would normally call small talk. You know, he said to, to Kirtananda, how's Hayagriva, what's he doing, where is he now, what's going on? He said to Shalavati, where are your sons, what's, you know. He was asking them questions about their family and their friends and their service. That's, if that's what you're looking for. And, and engaging in, in very, you know, um, it was very personal. I don't know if that answers your question. Yes? I want to ask you. In the translation or in purple, uh, Prabhupada legitimizes the Quran. And then, obviously, people ask Sastra. So, if a Muslim person was to say in the Quran, we're allowed to kill animals or kill cows, then is that justified? Like, how would you be able to? Oh, excellent question. Well, right here, the Qazi is saying that in the Quran, the killing of cows is allowed on the path of Pravriti Mark and not allowed on the path of Nivriti Mark. So, our response to that would be. Take the path of Nivriti Marg. The path of Pravriti Marg, or the path of sanctioned enjoyment of the world. It's just like, you know, in America they tried years ago to prohibit alcohol, to make alcohol illegal in the whole country. There was an amendment to the Constitution. It royally failed. It was a catastrophe and they had to repeal it. If we had a Krishna conscious society, if the whole world was in Mahaprabhu's movement, 
Do you think we can absolutely eliminate meat-eating intoxication, illicit sex, and gambling? Does anyone think we can absolutely 100% eliminate that? No. What would we do? If the whole UK was Krishna conscious, if the whole UK was under Mahaprabhu's banner, what would we do with meat-eating in the UK? Regulated how? Concessions. What kind of concessions? So under certain conditions it can be eaten and certain animals could be eaten. Okay, so what would be those, those conditions? Uh, such as goats. Um, so we might allow non-cows. Uh, under what conditions would we allow cows to be eaten? Prabhupada gave a condition under which people could eat cows. If they passed away. If they passed away naturally. So he said people who want to work with leather, they can collect the dead body of the cow, use the leather and eat the meat. So we would allow people to eat the meat of animals who died naturally. What other meat eating would we allow? Like special occasions? Yeah. Extreme situations of hunger. Extreme situations of hunger, okay. Any other? Certain kinds of sacrifices. Okay, but generally Prabhupada said that wasn't allowed for meat eating. Yeah? If in extremes, in an extreme situation, but that's very unusual. That's in the story of Prithu Maharaj about an extreme situation. The cow can be killed. Would we allow anybody to eat meat through hunting? Yeah, some people could eat meat through hunting. Eating meat through hunting is quite different than raising the animal under your protection and then killing it. Does that make sense to everybody? If I'm protecting an animal, feeding it, and taking care of it, and then I kill it, that's much worse than you know going out and, and hunting. But the hunting would have to be fair. It wouldn't have to be unfair. You know, a lot of most of the hunting practices are all unfair to the animal. The poor animal doesn't have a chance. So for the satriyas, they could engage in, in hunting under proper principles, and they could eat some of those animals. So even if we had a Krishna conscious society, we would allow some people on the path of material enjoyment to eat some meat under some circumstances. Yes, we would. We wouldn't be able to prohibit it entirely. That would fail. As Prabhupada says, see, these things are a natural in inclination for a conditioned soul. But we would encourage people in general on the path of Nivriti Mark. We would encourage people in general on the path of loving devotional service to the Lord, even within their own religions. Would we have to convert everybody from being a Mohammedan? Would, would we have to stop Islam? Would we, would we persecute Muslims? So what would we say to the Muslims in the UK if the whole UK was under Mahaprabhu's movement? We'd say, find the essence of your religion. What's the essence of your religion? To love Allah, to love Muhammad. That is also taught in Islam, isn't it? Yes? I'm not so familiar with Islam. Yeah? So that's what we would do. We would help the, the various traditions of the world to find bhakti within their own tradition, to revive the essential principle of the great religions of the world. And say, take the path of Nivriti Mark. We don't deny the parts of the Vedas that allow for animal sacrifice. There was uh, Dr. Patel was speaking to Prabhupada in Mumbai and he was saying the parts of the Shastra that allow for animal sacrifice are just wrong. 
And Prabhupada said, no, he said, that's blaspheming the Vedic literature. And that's an offense to the holy name. He said, that provision is there because some human beings will insist on it, so you have some provision for them. But that's not the ultimate path. We would, we would hope that we're going to have a society where pure bhakti is the norm. Where, where people in general understand that unmotivated loving service for the divine is the norm. And everything else is some sort of a compromise and some sort of a deviation that may be tolerated in society because you can't eliminate it entirely. But regulated and, and marginalized you know, in modern society, we don't want to marginalize anybody, but that's ridiculous. Something should be marginalized. Alcohol drinking should be marginalized. It shouldn't be the... Uh, I was just reading a fascinating thing by one very good friend of mine. There was a discussion as to whether or not devotees should wear, you know, tilak in public. And she received an order from her own Guru Maharaj to always wear tilak. So she works as a professional, but she always wears tilak. And some devotees were arguing with her and said, you know, this is not good preaching, it makes us look weird. And she said, the weirdest thing about me is not that I wear tilak, the weirdest thing about me is that I don't drink. <laughs> she said, nowadays so many people are having markings on their face. She said, in modern society, having some kind of markings on your face is pretty common. And people ask me, what's that mark on your face? And then I say, what's that mark on your face? <laughs> you know, and it's... So that's not a problem, she said, but the problem is in a work environment, I'm, you know, often going to meetings and conferences where everybody is drinking. She said alcohol is very much part of the society. She said the fact that I don't even drink coffee is really a barrier between me and other people, and they think it's, it's, it's very, very strange. So, you know, the people who don't drink, the people who don't take intoxication are marginalized and weird. So we should reverse that. This is like what's happened now with smoking. Smoking is becoming marginalized, thankfully. So the same thing should happen with meat-eating, illicit sex, intoxication, and gambling. And the same thing should happen with just materialism in general. Oh, you just put up a Christmas tree? You don't have a nativity scene? How weird. It's about Christ, after all. You know. That should be weird. You don't have anything about God in these books? Well, that's weird. That's just so weird. You never talk about God? How strange. So we should reverse what's socially acceptable and what's marginalized. Is that all right for an answer? Yes. No microphone? I can just repeat it. Oh, I was wondering if anybody was going to pick up on that statement. So Prabhupada, Prabhupada said here, wait, how exactly does he say it? He says, the propensities for eating flesh, drinking wine, and enjoying sex life are all natural to the conditioned souls. But you're saying that physiologically, human beings, it's not natural to eat flesh. Nor physiologically is it natural for us to eat wine. Obviously, sex is a biological uh, is biologically normal. 
But I just see that when Prophet's talking here about propensities, that he's saying that conditioned souls, we expect conditioned souls to do things like that, even if they're not biologically normal. I mean, below the human form, animals only do what is biologically normal, generally speaking. They don't really have an ability to do something that's biologically abnormal, generally. Generally. Sometimes even animals do things that are biologically abnormal. But usually, animals, they don't, they don't have that ability. They're so much covered by the modes of their body that, you know, a cow isn't, is, just isn't going to kill a rabbit. You know, it just... They're, they're forced by nature. Whereas when you get to the human form in the human body, you do have this freedom to choose. So I think in that freedom to choose, we could say that it's expected, it's a propensity that when a, a conditioned soul gets a human body where they can choose, part of the things they're going to do is choose wrongly. And they're going to choose things that are biologically abnormal. I mean, it's something like, I hate to say this, but anyway, it's something like if you're alone and nobody's watching what you do, there is a propensity to do things that you wouldn't do if people were watching. Yes? And this propensity is exhibited even in very young children, in very, very young human children. That as soon as they think nobody's watching, they turn the rubbish bin upside down. Yes, any of you who are parents? Or, or my, we had a humidifier, right? Is that what they call them here? Okay, so we had a humidifier when I was a child. It was metal and it was about this high and it had a hole in the top. And as a child, I remember very clearly, I was like two, three years old, I used to like to put things in that hole. You know, and I'd, I'd drop them in the hole and then I'd look in the hole. I remember very, very clearly. And I would keep putting things in the hole until the water vapor stopped. You know, that was my little game. What do I have to put in the hole to stop the water vapor? And then my father would come and he would have to take the humidifier apart and take all the things out. And I had a very, very kind father. Prabhupada said about my father, he said, good father, good daughter. A very, a very good father. I was very blessed with my father. So he'd take it all apart and he would explain to me as if I didn't understand, but I understood. He would say, now, don't put your toys in the hole. It blocks it and it's not good. Don't do that anymore, okay? And daddy has to come and clean it out. And I'd go... Okay, Daddy. And then I would watch him walk away. And then what would I do? I would go take a toy and put it back in the humidifier again. So that's our propensity as a conditioned soul. We have, we have a propensity as a conditioned soul to do things that we know are wrong. And we know are bad for us. And we take some delight in doing things that we know are bad for us. Isn't that weird? When we're eating that cake with the, you know, 10 centimeters of whipped cream on the top of it at 8 o'clock at night, after having groaned when we got on the scale that morning, you know, when we're eating the thing, we're not just enjoying the taste of the cake, my dear friends. 
We are enjoying the fact that we're doing something we're not supposed to do. <laughs> Just as much as I enjoyed putting the toys in that humidifier. Why do we have that propensity? Where does it come from? It comes from that beautiful young boy standing there playing his flute. He's such an interesting person. He's the rule maker. You know, and he has he breaks his own rules in Goloka Vrindavan, not in Vaikuntha or in Ayodhya. I'm not even sure about in Dwarka, but in Vrindavan he does. He has this setup in the Leela that the gopis are married to somebody else. Why? Why does he do that? They're his. Because it's fun to break the rules. It's fun to jump into bed at six in the morning and you know your mother wakes you up at seven and doesn't know you've been out all night dancing with your girlfriends in the forest. It's fun. He does it, which is, if you think about it in terms of tatva, it's very strange. Which is why we can't talk about these things so much to people in general. You know, it's just so odd that God's the rule maker. You know? Why is he breaking his own rules for fun? As if they were someone else's rules. He's breaking the rules as if they were moral codes given down by some other authority. How odd. And he even talks to the gopis and says, it's just providence that has separated us. Like, what is providence? It's you. I can't be blamed. After all, we are all puppets in the hands of providence. But this is the sweetness of this of the Nadalila of the Lord. So we also have this propensity. And when we're conditioned, this propensity shows up by doing things that are against nature. That's how it manifests itself. When we're covered by the mode of ignorance. Yeah, I mean, think about abortion. I mean, how is that natural for anybody? So why is this you know, but there's this, when you're in the mode of ignorance, that propensity manifests in this weird way. Where you actually enjoy doing things that go against your own biology. And it will cause you disease. Will cause you anxiety. People are enjoying playing a video game that puts them into anxiety. How, how perverse is that? But that's that's where it's come from. And what happens when you become Krishna conscious is you enjoy that inwardly you're actually opposed to all the rules of materialistic life. It's such a fun thing. You appear to be moving in the world but you're like, I'm not under any of your rules and codes. I'm on a different platform. Prophets would say we're in a place and we don't feel we're part of the place. So that pleasure is there as a devotee of Krishna also in a, in a higher form. So I think right now it's time for prasadam. So I want to... Just quickly, let it because I'm confused about it. About leather goods. Yeah. Prabhupada didn't like us using leather unless it came from animals that had died a natural death. 
There may be some circumstances where it's absolutely unavoidable, but Prabhupada didn't, didn't like us to use anything that was a direct coming from the slaughterhouse injury. So this is my last class here at the Manor on this trip. I want to thank you. I'll be going tomorrow to Birmingham and Soho for Balaram Purnima. So I want to thank you all for your hospitality and for keeping going this wonderful center for Srila Prabhupada. Um, I've...